it continues because we we have not properly focused on the problem as a health issue and as an issue that persists long after the bullets have been removed or you know the funeral has taken place there's still long lasting in- impacts of the violence Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm Cass. I'm MJ. When we think about gun violence in the United States, many folks think about high-profile mass shootings. They tend to dominate media attention and, for better or worse, often drive public discourse and policymaking. However, as we've talked about in prior episodes, mass shootings make up a relatively small portion of gun-related deaths. Suicides account for around 60% of firearm deaths, homicide accounts for the bulk of the remainder with a small proportion of those resulting from mass violence. Yeah, and I think most people don't know the fact that suicide takes up the majority because the media doesn't talk about it and depictions in you know TV shows and movies of any sort of like firearm, it's always to shoot other people. And yeah, but suicide is actually the bulk of firearm deaths and the skew is even more towards mass shooting. Like there's way more reporting about mass shooting and mass violence than there is homicide. Right. And we think about the stigma, like we talked about when Dr. Beth McGinty was on, Mm -hmm. stigma can apply to a whole bunch of things. And there's a lot of stigma around suicide and suicide in the family and folks not being willing to talk about that. And actually one thing I wanted to note in general, right, suicides account for around 60% of firearm deaths, but actually in 2020, it was only 53%. We actually saw a pretty substantial shift to more firearm homicides in 2020 with the new CDC data that just came out. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> right. So in prior years, we would always talk about between 14 and 15,000 gun homicides every year. In 2020, it was actually over 19,000. So we saw an almost 5,000 jump. How do I say that right? An increase, sort of a 5,000. We had 5,000 more gun homicides in 2020 than we did in 2019. But as we've talked about previously, these are not distributed equally across the U.S. The majority of our gun homicides in the U.S. are ravaging communities of color across the country. I'm so pleased that today we're joined by my colleague and friend to discuss the issue of community violence prevention, Mm. and I will let her introduce herself. My name is Dr. Shawnee Bugs. I am an assistant professor at the Violence Prevention Research Program at the University of California, Davis. I am a public health trained researcher. My degree is in health and public policy, and I specialize in violence prevention policy practice research, particularly community level violence prevention. So I think we've talked before in prior episodes about how I ended up studying gun policy and gun violence prevention. And many folks in the field hadn't necessarily planned on studying gun violence. I briefly, just as a reminder for folks, was studying occupational injury and was studying assaults against law enforcement officers and first responders and ended up realizing I needed to study guns to understand the problem. Mm -hmm. And as a gun owner, was a little bit hesitant to get into the field, but glad I did. It's been a very successful uh, career thus far for me. And I think Dr. Bugs took a particularly unique path to this as well. I came to public health not to study violence prevention. I came into public health, um, particularly came into public health research 
because I was working in the wellness coaching industry. I previously had a position with United Health Group working in their workplace wellness management and decided to get my master's in public health to really learn more about health promotion and health behavior change. And I came to Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the summer of 2012. And a few weeks after being in the master's of public health program, a gunman walked into a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado and shot dozens of people. And that incident captured the attention of media and the public nationwide. And as tragic as that incident was, I was stunned by how much attention it got in comparison to the regular shootings that were happening right there in Baltimore that were sometimes not even making the local paper or making the nightly news. I mean, what a moving and just interesting story. And I think this, a lot of people in public health, like myself included, they really like found their way to public health. Do you get what I mean? Like, it's not like, I mean, I'm sure there are some people out there who, you know, from the day that they were born is like, this is what I want to do. But a lot of public health people is like, they were searching for something and then they were exploring certain areas and or they came from a different background. And then they found public health to be this really cool and awesome field that they say, this is where I want to be. And I think that's that's for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I may have mentioned previously, right? I wanted to be a doctor, like a physician doctor, not a thinking doctor. Mm. (laughs) I had wanted to do orthopedic surgery. I thought it was so cool. You could help people after they were hurt. And when I discovered public health, I was like, mind blown. You can actually keep people from getting hurt in the first place. Yeah. Orthopedic surgery. You just took your brace off. So congratulations. (laughs) I did. Whenever I tell students the sort of story of my path, right, sort of how I got to where I am. You know, I always talk about how I got hurt a lot as a kid and had to have surgeries. But, you know, for the last three months, I've been able to point at my cast or my brace and be like, look, I still get hurt a lot. (laughs) It gets a a good chuckle. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Shani's been studying gun violence, particularly community violence, for nearly 10 years at this point. And despite what we see in the media and, as we mentioned, this coverage of high-profile shootings, such as Las Vegas or Newtown, gun violence is not only that. It's also not only violence related to drugs and gangs. And I'm going to have Shani explain a little bit more. People thinking of gun violence as Sandy Hook, as Vegas, as as Aurora. That is true. People also think of gun violence as a drug or gang problem. It's usually one of those two paradigms that people use. And it is far, far more complex than that. The gun violence that we see, that we have seen for decades in low-income, predominantly communities of color, is gun violence between acquaintances. It's between sometimes friends, families, intimate partners. It occurs from disputes that escalate very quickly because firearms are present. And it has existed in some communities for years and years and years with no real attention other than sending in more police to address the problem. And what we know about gun violence is that it is a complex, 
multifaceted issue that requires a multi-level response. And it is a health issue. The violence that we see today in these communities where gun violence is more prevalent, is more common, is more regular, was born out of decades of neglect and disinvestment in those very communities where the communities have been deprived of economic opportunity, of stable food and housing security, of optimal educational opportunities, of adequate health resources, both physical and mental health, of safe environments to play and for children to be children. I mean, we're just starting to explore this idea of social determinants of health. We started with poverty. and We kind of started with poverty. We officially mentioned it in education, but there's so many different factors that play into violence and that plays into crime that a lot of people don't really think about. A lot of people, or I should say this, the traditional approach to crime has always been more police, more incarceration, more heavier sentences, mandatory minimums, but kind of like the the housing crisis, it's a problem that is very complex. And I think anytime someone proposes a simple solution to a complex problem, it almost never goes well. Yeah, absolutely. And really, when we're thinking about community violence prevention, like, yes, guns are part of the problem, but there's also the demand. Why is it that people in communities with high rates of violence feel like they need a firearm for protection, for safety, etc. And really, it comes down to so many of the social and economic factors that impact one's ability, not just to survive, but to thrive, which we've talked about before, right? Like our goal in many of our policy choices is simply to allow people to survive. We are not equipping people with the economic resources and social supports and all of the sort of factors that influence our health and well-being, we're not equipping them with enough of those things for them to thrive. And really, when we're thinking about response to violence, for decades, the proposed solutions around gun violence prevention have almost exclusively been dominated by law enforcement strategies. But when we recognize this as a multifaceted issue, as you raised, we can't keep using the same approaches. So it's important for people to understand how complex violence is. And when you're talking about violence between acquaintances or friends or family members or intimate partners, it's important to then also realize that our response can't just be punitive. Our response can't just be that we need heavier, harder sticks and more force because often the victims and the committers of the harm know each other. So it's not as simple as just we need more force. It's also important for people to know that while these incidents make the news and then they go away, the trauma and the impact of the violence does not. And so the violence we see today, a lot of it is retaliatory. A lot of it is because we are not intervening and addressing the healing that needs to occur. And so it continues because we we have not properly focused on the problem as a health issue and as an issue that persists long after the bullets have been removed 
or, you know, the funeral has taken place, there's still long lasting impacts of the violence. A really interesting thing, right? So one of the areas I study is policing. I'm not a policing scholar. There are way smarter people on policing, but I, I study sort of the intersection of policing strategies and public health. And one of the things that has always stuck with me is Sir Robert Peel, who is thought of as sort of the grandfather of the traditional law enforcement that we see today. He created the Bobbies, Robert Peel. That's why they're called the Bobbies in London. Then he set out several basic principles for law enforcement, and several of them have to do with, you know, requiring the support of the public, et cetera. But the one that really, really resonates with me the most is that the effectiveness of police is not in sort of seeing your active response to crime. The effectiveness of police should be measured by the absence Correct, of crime. Yeah. Right. Not just like, oh, we see people responding to crime. No, if we're having to respond to crime, then we've already sort of failed at that point. And, and even a couple hundred years ago, he was really thinking about maybe not a couple hundred years yeah, ago. Yeah, hundred yeah, years yeah. ago. Let me, let me try that again. So even like a hundred years ago, we really were seeing a public health approach in here. And, and we can't just think about problems that we're solving. We have to focus on solutions. Yeah. And this is a very public health thing to think about is that if you see the problem, it's almost too late. The whole point of public health is that we don't want the problem to happen in the first place. And and I think a lot of people, when they see community violence as strictly a crime issue, they tend to forget or they can tend to dehumanize the people involved. And you have to understand that, I don't know, this might be a little controversial, but no one likes gun violence. I don't think people is like, yeah, I love living in a space where, you know, bullets are flying, right? I don't think that's that. Yeah, I think it's a safe assumption that most people want our communities to be safe. Yeah. So it's if you think of it just as a crime problem, you're going to perhaps dehumanize the people involved a little bit. But it's a very traumatic experience for both the person getting shot and the people connected to the person getting shot, like family and friends, when they see people get shot, it's a very traumatic experience. Well, and if you think about what Michelle Alexander talks about in her book, The New Jim Crow, that dehumanizing aspect was really one of the core elements of the war on drugs, sort of demonizing people who are using drugs, living in areas where drugs are sold or used black people. Let's let's remember that, right? Because black and white Americans use drugs at similar rates, but are convicted for that use at very different rates because of where we prioritize our policing. But that dehumanization is not just related specifically to gun violence, but sort of crime more broadly. Yeah. I think as you were you were raising when we've we've talked in prior episodes for other topics about the importance of meeting people where they are right and when we're working to reduce violence in communities it's really no different we've created systems structures and spaces through disinvestment and disenfranchisement that elevate the risk of violence involvement either through victimization or perpetration And one of the things I've learned from collaborating with Shani, Dr. Bugs, and working to understand community perspectives on both violence and violence prevention is the importance of credible messengers. When we're delivering programs and services, we need people on the street who can authentically connect with those who are at greatest need and possibly also the hardest to reach. But when we're talking about the individuals who are at highest risk for violence involvement, it's important to know first who can reach them. And so when we think about other public health problems, 
like drug abuse independence, substance use independence. If you think about the health of sex workers, if we're thinking about reaching that population, you need people who can relate, who can identify that population, who can engage that population in a way that the population is receptive. And so violence prevention programs that are geared at reaching those who are at highest risk for violence involvement require people who are from the community or can relate to the community in which they are working, who can relate to the population of interest. This is not always the case, but these are often individuals who have been involved in violence prior themselves, who some have been incarcerated for violence or drug offenses or, you know, very much can relate to the world in which those who they're trying to reach inhabit. But at the very least, these programs require people who can truly relate without judgment to the population, who can earn the trust, earn the credibility of the people they're trying to engage. Because if the intention is to, which it always is, to connect them to services, supports, resources that can help shift the trajectory of their lives, you have to gain that trust and earn that respect and that credibility. And this is a very important part because I don't know whether there's like a sociological name for this. You know, in a lot of old movies and in a lot of just in the colonial era of the world, there's a lot of like white savior syndrome. It's reminding me of that because you can't just go into a community and be like, I know nothing about your world, but I'm here to save you. Or I know what your problems are and here's my program as a solution and I can fix all that ails you. Yeah. And then if you look nothing like the people that live there, or if you have no understanding, personal connection of the people that live there, like your message is not going to be credible. And the same thing is like, you can't go to a a drug user and say, hey, stop using drugs, right? That's just not, or you can't go to, you know, perhaps people who are living in these communities and say, hey, you know, stop buying guns. Whereas to them, it's really, you know, a tragedy, but they live in a space where if they don't have guns, they might not be able to survive, right? They, they, They live in that space. Do you know what I mean? Maybe I'm not phrasing this in a in a right way. No, I, I think we've talked previously about what outsiders may view as an irrational decision, feeling like a perfectly rational choice when you're in particular circumstances. Yeah. And so we can't come in and say, why are you making these choices? Why are you doing these things? You don't know what you're doing. You know, let us let us come in and tell you how to to live differently. That message doesn't land well, and it really comes much more effectively and meaningfully when the person delivering the message is from the community who has similar experiences, has been exposed to the similar kinds of traumas and has been able to turn their life around and can really promote some of those pro-social norms. You know, there are a lot of effective community-based violence prevention programs across the country. Most, if not all, include credible messengers. They also have those messengers sort of conduct case management and help make connection to services. And these are really important features of these programs. And Shani's going to talk a little bit more about this. Helping individuals on a regular basis navigate their days. As I mentioned, you know, the environmental conditions in these communities where violence is highly prevalent, you often have 
regular food instability and insecurity. You have regular housing instability and insecurity. The opportunities for job training and job access are limited, if not available at all. So having case managers work with these individuals to understand the complex needs of them and their families and then connect them to resources and connect them not just by giving them a phone number or a card and saying, call this person on Monday at three, but walking with them and really helping them navigate systems that are difficult to navigate, even for those of us that are privileged and able to spend time and energy and resources navigating things like getting an ID or a driver's license or figuring out the health system and insurance and how to navigate payment of bills and things like that, but also mentoring and providing got daily, you know, regular guidance, encouragement, being a, a voice that the individuals can lean on, can count on, can, can reach out to. The evidence has shown in various areas that having trusted mentors, having trusted adults who are providing what we know as pro-social activities and pro-social behaviors, modeling the kinds of behaviors, but also encouraging, you know, with positive reinforcement changes in decision-making in ways that can help lead someone away from violence. That's what these, these programs offer. Another important component is that connection to the resources and supports. And I talked about the case management side of it, but violence prevention programs rely on the resources and supports in the community to be able to help shift behavior or shift thinking around what is required for survival in these communities. So the programs themselves are only as successful as the resources and supports that are available to help the individuals there, the programs are engaging. I think this, again, it resonates with what you brought up earlier is when you're placed in those situations, the choices you make is going to be based on, you know, your surroundings, right? You can't, I don't know, this might get too spicy for the main episode, but you, <laughs> you can't blame people for their action if the only reason why they did that action is because you put them in that position right it's it's the same thing is uh, i forgot what movie that is but you know oh, oh is it uh sophie's choice yeah sophie's choice where she has to pick one of her kids to survive and one to go to the nazis yeah was, uh, meryl streep is amazing yeah she is <laughs> but you you can't say oh how could she do that well she was placed in an impossible situation right so it's while I'm not saying individual agency have no weight, they certainly do, but you have to understand that it's almost not fair to judge people based on the situation that they're in, you know? Absolutely. And again, I think this is a, a theme that we've talked about in prior episodes where we place so much blame and weight on individual choices and ignore the structures and systems around these individuals that are impacting their ability to make choices, right? Like it's it's not just about willpower and choosing to eat better food, right? It's dependent upon the food that you have access to around you. What can you afford, right? Exactly. And so, you know, this is community gun violence and sort of and gun homicide is along the same lines. It's a very complex problem 
No one single thing is going to address the problem. We need to focus on the supply side of the issue. Where are the guns coming from? How are they getting into these communities? How are these individuals acquiring them? What's happening with these guns that are being diverted into these communities? But on the other sort of side, we also need to focus on demand. What is it that's happening that is making these people feel like this is the only rational choice? What is it about sort of investment, not just in the communities, but in the individuals to help them feel supported so that they can make other choices? We can't expect people to make rational choices when they're in an irrational and unreasonable situation. You have individuals who are living in communities where there are high rates of violence. Their decision making is often based on surviving in that community. So the decisions that they make to carry a gun, to navigate certain spaces, to not navigate certain spaces. Behavior change is not necessarily what is required. What may be required is more community change, is engagement with resources and supports in the community broadly so that the environment is changed as well as helping the individual on a, you know, an individual level. And I think a lot of people don't have this community violence in their heads because all we see about violence is like you said the mass shooting events and or usually traditionally media has always framed it as like a drug issue or as a gang issue like we don't consider that a lot of community violence is perhaps an argument that escalated or perhaps it was a domestic issue or there is a lot of violence that is for lack of a better term like day to day that people just don't think about because the media doesn't really focus on this Well, and when the media does cover it, I will say it has gotten better. It has gotten better. But like one of the most egregious examples that always comes into my mind is when a white male murdered his entire family. Yes. And when the news media covered the story, all they showed were pictures of him with his family looking happy. You know, they didn't show his mugshot. Very shortly, like within the same time span, a black father killed someone who was raping his daughter and they showed his mugshot. They didn't show him with his daughter. They didn't show any family pictures. Even just if you didn't read any information, the pictures that were presented, it was very clear who was lifted up as a like a model person and who was not. And just I was livid when this happened and a lot of people were livid and and it really called out media for this but this is just one One of several examples yeah example of many of decades right when we think about who's a criminal right who's a bad guy what we see on the news largely feeds into that and we see mugshots of black americans that's really what is all right i'm getting a little bit too spicy so let me (laughs) let me dial it back a little bit and i'm going to kick it back to dr shawnee bugs to share a final reflection on the multifaceted nature of gun violence and actually where this fits in with some other strategies to reduce violence. Solutions have to be multi-level and multifaceted. So we talked about community violence prevention programs, and I hopefully have made the convincing case that they are necessary, but not sufficient. And firearm policy is also necessary and not sufficient on its own. The community violence intervention programs want to reduce firearm carrying because the evidence is all around us that the presence of firearms increases the likelihood of firearm violence. Because 
Arguments happen, disputes happen, frustrations happen, unintentional injuries happen, all kinds of things happen. And so not having a firearm present reduces the likelihood of firearm injury and death. So the programs discourage firearm carrying, particularly with engagement when there is engagement with the programs. But it is incredibly important that policymakers at the local and state and federal levels address the issue of firearm flow and firearm access. The guns that are being used within those places are coming from other places. And those are policy decisions that lawmakers have the power to affect. And so it's important that the flow of firearms, who has access to firearms, what we do when we find firearms, how we trace guns, how we track shootings between one incident and another, matching bullets to firearms, etc. All of those are policy decisions that we were desperately need law makers to take up. And sadly, that issue of firearm policy has been made political. It should not be political because this is a public health issue and bullets do not discriminate and firearms do not respect city or state boundaries. And we need to be thinking about this as a preventable issue that policymakers have the potential to address. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. Send us questions or comments to EverythingIsPublicHealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. Please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcast. It helps the show immensely. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page and you can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.